to another episode of Beaver Pod. And today we are looking at another Congress special. And we've got some incredible people here who will be at Congress. We've got Gemma Pearson, Director of Behaviour at the Horse Trust, who's based at Edinburgh Vet School. And Tamsin Furtado, Researcher in Human Behaviour, who's at Liverpool and is also funded by the Horse Trust. Thank you for coming today, you two. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So we're really excited about the parts, the big parts you two are playing at Congress this year. And it obviously focuses around human and horse behaviour. And we had this kind of idea that came from you two to present these two behavioural things together. So talk to me a little bit about why there is an important thing to look at them together and the similarities and parallels that you two have. Go. Okay. Well, um, Gemma and I have started working together on some research projects. Um, originally, I think kind of happened because we were doing some presentations, which happened to be alongside each other, looking at horse behavior and human behavior. And every time we did them, we kind of were looking at each other going, wow, there's actually so many similarities here and so much more that we could be doing kind of working together. Because of course, when Gemma's working with a horse behavior case, there's a lot of human behavior involved in um perhaps training that horse differently, perhaps changing the horse's management and so on. And when I'm thinking about human behaviour in relation to horse welfare, then, um, of course, the, the horse, the role of the horse is really important and how the horse feels about the changes that are being made and so on. So um, it kind of became increasingly um, important that we looked at these things together, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, like I say, a lot of the cases I see, there's a lot of emotional involvement from the owners you know, the owners are obviously very invested in these horses, but they're often very stressed. They're often fearful or, you know, there's other things kind of going on with them. And then you've got the whole livery yard component, whereby they're put under a lot of social pressure from other people on the yard. And I can easily look at horse and say, this is the behaviour modification plan that's going to work well for this horse. But there's no point in me coming up with something. If I say, I want you to move it into a different field and do this, if the livery yard aren't going to allow that, So it's kind of really important for me to understand, one, the thoughts and feelings that the owners are going through and being able to help them navigate that as well as training the horse for me is the easy bit. (laughs) Um, And then also look at, you know, we talk about the combi model and things, don't we? Look at the opportunities and the capability in the environment that they're in. And so would you say when you come across cases that, yeah, that you rarely can just focus on the horse. So there's always a human component there. There's always an interaction there. So it's important to understand both those sides of things then. Yeah, absolutely. And I think how much of that really depends on what you're doing. So if you're going out to treat a foot abscess, then the chances are that you're just going to dig the foot abscess out, show the owner how to put a poultice on. It's going to be fairly nice and easy and direct. You know, you're going to put it on box dress for a couple of days, you're going to give them meds and such like. The owners can follow that quite nicely. But when we start talking about more complex challenges, obesity is obviously the one that Tamsin did her PhD on, um, problem behaviours in horses, even things like worming. You know, we want people to move on to fecal worm accounts. We want to use more sustainable worming. But there's the human behaviour side of that in terms of why they make the choices they do. But if the horse actually rears up and is dangerous every time the owner tries to give a wormer, then potentially you've got a high shedder that isn't getting wormed. And I I know this happens from speaking to owners because they pretend they've given it to the horse and put it in the bin because they don't want to be judged by the other owners for not being, you know, brave enough. At the same time, they don't want to get injured. So they're limited in their choices. Yeah, absolutely. So I think every 
um, every human behavior project we work on, the, the horse's behavior is kind of really a central component of that. So I think worming is such a good example there. We've recently been doing quite a bit of work on, um, on human behavior around worming fecal accounts and paddock management and so on. And the horse's kind of role in that is so interesting and kind of, I think, not really thought about that much. And, and in fact, even owners themselves were like, oh yeah, he's a complete nightmare to worm. But, you know, and I, I really struggle with this step, but kind of also didn't really think of that as like a, um, a, a barrier to them worming. It was just something that they had to struggle with every time they worm their horses, for example. But, you know, Mick did, didn't maybe think there's something we can do about this. So I think there's lots of stages involved. So, you know, in any behavior change project, I guess we need to think about. So what's this? There might be stages where we're teaching people in advance of something happening, how to do kind of more preventive, um, preventive work to stop their horse from having an issue in future, or they might already have an issue, in which case they might already have an issue with the horse's behavior or some unwanted behaviors, in which case they then need to change their, what they're doing, maybe the environment and so on in relation to that. And I guess from a vet's point of view, so say, I mean, some vets might be listening to this and thinking, well, you know, it's my job to give the owner the instructions, but, you know, it's not it's not my role to kind of train the owner. But from what you've said, and I think from some of your work that you've you've sort of spoken about in the past, it is achievable for us to learn some of these skills as ambulatory vets on the road or vets in clinics dealing with dealing with owners. What sort of stuff would be good examples of things they could put into practice with you know just some input some help that that you guys could give them some some pointers i suppose so i think first of all recognizing where there may be a barrier or there may be a challenge either from the horse behavior or the human behavior point of view because i think vets can often assume you know even i use the example of a foot abscess the vet puts it on quickly because they've got other calls to go to or they want to get home for their tea and then they go look this is how you put it on they put it on quickly and they go right I'll leave you to it. Well, if that's an owner that's never seen a poultice being put on before and doesn't really know how to bandage a foot and doesn't even really know how to hold a, a leg up to put it on, mm-hmm. you know, automatically there's some challenges there. If the horse was sedated because, you know, it was painful and you removed the shoe and dug out the, the subsolar abscess, but then actually the owner doesn't pick the horse's feet out because it flings its legs around normally, the chance of them being able to change it is really hard. So the first thing is, just asking questions in the right way so that, you know, don't don't say to the owner, so you're okay changing this poultice every day then, yeah? You know, because obviously that's going to, they're going to go, yeah, of course I am. <laughs> Whereas, I mean, Tamsin throw better one time says to me, but saying something along the lines of, you know, how do you feel about changing the poultice every day? Um, you know, are, are there any barriers? And identifying where the problems are, not judging people. I think when we're chatting through this, one thing that surprised us as we've worked together more I've always thought horses are very simple creatures and they're not naughty because they don't have the cognitive ability to want to do things to make our life difficult. They just don't have that. But I will look at things and I'll say, okay, well, what's the motivation behind the behavior? What reinforces it? And then I'm going to alter how we deal with that horse to change the motivation and change the reinforcement for a different behavior. And I've kind of probably been more judgmental in the past and thought, well, people are naughty. And, you know, people, why don't they follow instructions when we know that's in the best interest of their horse? But actually, the more I've worked with Tamsin, the more I've realized that when I talk about learning theory and, you know, classical conditioning and some really basic concepts, actually, a lot of the same things apply to people. And once you start recognizing that it's often fear or frustration or social pressure or other things that are barriers, 
and you're willing to, to be open to that, you, you get a lot more satisfaction out of the job because we know how frustrating it is as a vet. As a vet. If you've got a horse that's overweight and you know that this horse is going to get laminitis if they don't do anything about it and you really try and ram it home to them and nothing happens and then they get laminitis or, you know, I mean, there's so many scenarios whereby you go, well, there's just no point because the owner's just not being compliant. And that doesn't help our job satisfaction and ultimately it doesn't help the horse's welfare. So going back to what you said before, Lucy, I think we do have a duty. You know, if our duty is to the protection of the animal and that animal's welfare, part of that is going to involve some human behaviour change. Do you want to follow up on that? Yeah, definitely. Um, I had a light bulb moment around this when I was first studying the human behaviour change stuff. I was at a talk and the um, whoever was speaking, and I can't actually remember now, but they said, um, when we say we go to... So we go somewhere and we see a dog that's kind of quite aggressive and snappy or growling at us. We, as animal lovers, generally go, oh, wow, I wonder what led that dog to feel like that. And if I wanted to change their behavior, then, I, you know, I'd probably uh, try and maybe gain their trust or, you know, uh, work out how I can make them feel better before I build a relationship with them. But when we see a person who's maybe a little bit aggressive or uh, frustrating or standoffish, then we we immediately get defensive and think, oh, what horrible person. And we, we don't kind of treat them in the same way. But actually, at the core of it, we're animals too. And most of the behaviour change science kind of relies on the fact that actually most of what we do in our day-to-day lives isn't kind of knowledge-based, isn't logical. Most of what we do is rely on our habits, our beliefs, our, you know, our kind of instantaneous reactions which we maybe don't think through in that that same way so actually just like the you know we need to approach a person that we see as kind of difficult or non-compliant or whatever in the same way that we would think about an animal what's actually led them what are the previous experiences which have led them to feel that way and that's a lot more um kind of holistic as an approach and generally gets a lot of better reception because essentially we all just want to be listened to um, and, and kind of following up and Gemma's um, example of the hoof abscess there um, just kind of rang a bell with a very lovely friend of mine who's a new horse owner who had a hoof abscess uh, which she called the vet for last week and actually even that's you know that's like a, a simple example that we use there but actually it, just in that one example so uh, she had lots of people on the yard she, she phoned me in tears because there were lots of people on the yard saying you shouldn't phone a vet for a hoof abscess you need to phone the farrier uh, so that was an initial pressure but she did call the vet because she wasn't sure what to do then phoned me in tears because multiple people after the vet had left uh, were saying why are you you know oh you don't need to be changing that twice a day why are you changing it twice a day oh he should be in he should be out you should be using this you should be using that and so again um, even in a really really you know that's the simple case that we use there in comparison with like an end of life decision or obesity management or whatever. I think often um, vets I work with kind of underestimate the extent of the other influences that are on people and the pressures that they're under from those around them, um, the advice they might be seeking from their peers, from their instructors, from the forums, social media, and so on. Um, so kind of, I guess, uh, understanding that you're one voice among many, so you have to make your voice heard by being by building that relationship and being a kind of reliable um, source that people can feel like they can go back to and, and trust if possible, because there are going to be lots of other people who are contributing. And if someone else comes across as more trustworthy or more knowledgeable than than you, then unfortunately, you know, you know, th- then people are going to follow follow them instead. So I think that's quite important. And that's, you know, that's a really simple case of a little hoof abscess, which resolved in two days, but caused a huge amount of frustration in the meanwhile. 
Yeah, that's probably a really good point. I think we're all as humans quite good as I think you said the word judging and and not maybe thinking about what lies behind people behave people's behaviours. Mm. As you know, and we're we're getting better with the animal side. I mean, we're by no means <laughs> probably there yet, and there's lots of work to be done. But um, but actually, you're right. Approaching the owners in similar ways to how we do the animals and trying to understand how they've got to this stage uh, might seem like a a, a sort of big job to do but actually with the right techniques and the right skills and practicing those you can employ it within your and integrate it within your sort of routine approach to cases and, and to owners what, yeah. what were you going to say sorry Gemma uh, well, I'm just going to say I also think we we sometimes forget about that interaction between horse and human mm-hmm. behavior and that mm-hmm. leads us to sometimes judging people again but there was a really nice study um several years ago now whereby someone stood at the side of an arena with an umbrella and they rode horses past it and these were you know from novice riders up to elite level riders and the horses walked past the person that just stood still didn't bat an eyelid at them kept going round they then said to them next time your horse walks past they're going to open the umbrella up in front of your horse's nose they never did but every single time on that approach the human's heart rate went up and the horse's heart rate mirrored it and then some of the horses were even starting to look and think about napping and things like that. So we're very quick to go, oh, this is the problematic behaviour from the horse. But horses as prey animals are really in tuned into our emotional state. So a- another example, kind of similar, would be if people are riding horses and the horse spooks in, in the same corner of the arena every time, the rider may start putting more pressure on the horse every time they approach that corner of the arena to go, I'm not going to let him spook. Well, the horse just perceives that as more pressure because there's something scary and I need to be alert and be ready to run away. And then the instructor might get on and the instructor is calm and relaxed and they don't feel the need to put pressure on. They're just ready to react if something happens. And then the horse is like, the scary thing's gone because now my rider's more confident. So the horse doesn't spook. So immediately the horse gets blamed for being difficult with the novice rider, but also the novice rider gets blamed for letting them get away with it. Whereas actually we can explain what's going on using learning theory and an understanding of horse and human behaviour. And once you start to understand these interactions, you make more progress and you'd see a really similar thing with different vets and different owners that are handling horses. We all know a good horse handler is worth their weight in gold, that calm, relaxing influence they have on the horse. But I think as vets, we forget perhaps, you know, you're very confident and, you know, very calm naturally with horses, but you've just had a row with your partner on the phone or a reception have just rang you. And even though it's six o'clock and you're meeting, you know, the in-laws for tea at seven, they've gone, we need to, we need you to go see this other case on the way home because no one else can and you know it's going to be a disaster. So you then go to vaccinate this horse that's normally perfectly well-behaved, and you're irritated, you're angry, you know, there's other things going on in your brain, and then this horse starts reacting, and you think, oh, for bleep, 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 I don't need this right now, I'm late, why is this horse being difficult? And we don't often recognise that it's our behaviour that's driven that response in that scenario. So we sometimes need to look in the mirror, presumably. Yeah. And I'd say um, I think all the projects we've worked on, again, this the kind of human fear and a lot of people talk about 
potentially there being an increasing amount of fear or a decreasing amount of confidence in sort of your average horse owner as well. Um, being a real barrier for people in the way they handle and look after their horses, um, the way they exercise their horses and so on. But I, and I think, I think every, everyone in the horse world would in the abstract say, oh yeah, horses are really sensitive. And of course, um, of course they respond to our emotions. And I can see that person over there is really frustrated and look at their horse. But I don't think that we're always very good at being self-reflective of how we are with our own individual horses. So um, often, like, you know, the stress at the end of the day, as Gemma just said, that works equally well with a horse owner. And, you know, they've been told to go and exercise their horse or do that <laughs> that hoof and do the poultice or whatever it is. And, you know, being stressed at the end of the day, knowing you've got to go and look after the kids. I don't think we're always very good at um, necessarily recognising with ourselves how that's impacting the horse. And then how um, we've been doing a bit of work recently, actually looking at kind of increasing uh, emotions and frustration in people and then how we manage that around horses. Um, and obviously that varies from person to person, but it's definitely something that I need. I think we need more work on because it's, um, I don't think it's talked about enough, actually. Um, no, and I think that, that's a really good point. And I mean, on the back of that, I suppose, so for, for any vets and nurses or anyone really allied professionals that are, that are listening to this, where where would you direct them obviously whether that's to sort of courses cpd sessions at congress whatever or other resources uh, or yourselves or or people that you know of how would you advise them to progress this part of their of themselves and the way they practice and their their roles and their jobs and their way they liaise with their clients and horse owners what would be the next steps to someone saying okay i like the sound of this what do i do next so from a horse behaviour change, so dealing with needle shy horses or, you know, horses that are generally difficult, obviously Beaver already have some great resources. Mm-hmm. And I think I can say we are going to launch something soon, yeah. um, which is going to be, a, you know, free access for Beaver members to be able to sign up to show that they understand about low stress handling in horses. And that's just going to be a, an online course that's really going to cover everything you need to know as an, a first opinion equine vet to deal with horses and make your life less stressful and theirs. Then do you want to discuss maybe from a human behaviour change point of view? Yeah, human behaviour. Um, well, if you're coming to Congress, well, on both of us, we both we both have talks. Um, there's also a workshop um, run by um, Bronwyn and Sam Chubbuck from World Horse Welfare, um, which I'll be involved in as well, looking at um, implementing the skills of human behaviour change and kind of communication approaches that you might use um, and also setting boundaries and practice as kind of part of that. Um, so those are on Thursday and Yes, Gemma and I are both there and we love talking to people and we can talk all day about this stuff. So we'd love to hear from you. Um, equally, feel free to drop me an email. I'm sure Gemma's the same. There are some nice short courses, which are a good introduction on a website called Human Behaviour Change for Life, um, which I would recommend. So they're kind of short and low cost, which definitely provide kind of an introduction to um, behaviour change in relation to animal welfare specifically. Um, so, yeah, if people want kind of a bit more of a flavour of the sorts of things we might talk about, then I would recommend going there brilliant so yeah so those resources there's existing resources and some more coming in the pipeline which i think hopefully you know we're all aware that everyone's very busy and struggles to fit in any cpd and learning and things in their lives but hopefully the those two things will distill the really 
pertinent points for something that'll be useful for a horse owner vet uh, sorry a horse vet or or nurse or someone working in this in this profession this industry that's really helpful so thank you very much for coming and talking to us both of you and um we look forward to seeing your sessions at congress very excited not long to go now in a couple of weeks and um and yeah hopefully you'll get lots of people coming and asking more questions about how they can get involved in this side of things and grow their knowledge in this area because i think it will surely be a felt the benefits um throughout their whole working sort of careers and their their average day so thank you very much thank you you. take care bye